Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want to begin with a word of prayer as we approach this text together. Father, we are beneficiaries of your grace in every moment of our lives. And this moment is no different. And in fact, this moment is more intense in that respect that you have blessed us. You have caused us to gather. You have stirred in our hearts each of us to be here, maybe for various different reasons, but we're all here to receive from your word what you have for us. And I pray that we would take this opportunity seriously and that we would that we would press into you and see you clearly i pray that all that you intend from this chapter of your word would come to fruition in our hearts today and if you would where you are in your own heart if you would pray for yourself that the lord would work in your life, in your heart and mind, that you would see what he has for you and that you would yield to it. And if you would also pray for me, that the Lord would preserve me through this time and that I would speak in ways that are clear and helpful for you today. Father, we do love you and we trust you. and We believe that all that you do is right and good and for our good, your people. Pray that you would strengthen us, help us, encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. So like last week, the structure of this message is a little bit different, somewhat unusual. Typically, as a church, what we do is we go line by line through books of the Bible, and we call that expositional or expository preaching. That is our norm. We have concluded our series on 1 Peter, and we're doing a few standalones, a mini-series, which is what we're in today, before we resume with the next book from the Bible, which will be 2 Peter. Surprise, surprise. So, but this isn't really topical preaching. This is what I would call, um, if you'll uh, allow the term, argumentative preaching. I'm making an argument. I'm proposing something to you, which we'll come to here in a few minutes. But I'm trying to make a point. And this is one of two messages. The the first message in this series was... um, was last week. And the point is, as you see on your screen, life together. Uh, Why do we as a church do what we do? Why are we trying to aim for the things that we're aiming for? There are so many things that we do as a church outside of the Sunday gathering. This assembly is most important, but we do several other things in connection with our services. And it can kind of hang on this statement, life together life together. And last week we looked at loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, and the promises that we make to each other in our church covenant in order to promote faithfulness to those promises. 
And the whole point is that we as a church body are functionally in each other's lives to make sure that we walk in obedience. I made this statement to all of us, and this is, this is very, very true. It's not just true of promises in the church. It's true of promises with your spouse, true of promises with your children, to your boss. Without real voluntary submission to accountability to keep promises, promises themselves are meaningless. You can say whatever you want. You can promise to do anything you want, but unless you willingly submit yourself to accountability in order to keep those promises, you're just spewing words. And so there are several commands that we have from the Lord, our Savior, to keep with respect to life together as a church. And so we make promises as a church to keep those things together. And so that's why we come to Deuteronomy 6. I have several objectives in this message, not least of which, number one, is to exposit. I really want to give you a, a full, rich sense of what this whole chapter means. So I want to exposit it, at least from a 10,000-foot perspective. If, if nothing else happens today, I hope you come away with a deeper, fresher, richer understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Secondly, I want to solve the riddle, as I call it, the riddle of the connection between the family, or the, the nuclear biological family, and the family of God. And I call it a riddle because there are various answers to how these two entities relate to each other. And if I were to pull all of you with a blind pull and not tell you what it was aimed towards, we would probably show that there are at least three or four major different camps in understanding how the family relates to the family of God. So it is my attempt to propose what I believe Scripture, specifically Deuteronomy 6, does in answering that question. Thirdly, I want to defend my solution to the riddle. Fourth, I want to give broad application. You might not be married. You might not have children. You might have had a bad family growing up. But I want to apply this teaching of the connection between the two families broadly enough to all of us so that we, as the people of God, can be encouraged, instructed, and grow. And then lastly, I want to, in light of what I say, in, in line with all this, I want to summon, correct, and encourage. I want to summon our church for us to greater levels of obedience and faithfulness to the promises that we make. And we'll, I'll show, as, as we get nearer to the end, the promises that we ask all of our covenant members to make with respect to the family and with respect to what's called the kingdom of God, same entity generally as the family of God. Also, I want to correct, I want to press up against some common misunderstandings and less than ideal teaching regarding the family. I also want to summon and encourage the parents in this room especially if your children are still living with you at home. I also want to just offer real encouragement to the children in this room. If you're living at home or if you have parents, if you're growing up and you, you still have a relationship, a working relationship with your parents, how you should think about those things. I also want to summon you to sight, sight of the Lord Jesus, for you to see him through an Old Testament chapter. And then I want to summon you to faith. I want to call the non-believer to repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus for the first time. And then I want to summon and call the believer to repentance and trust anew for today. So in some ways, this may be my most ambitious message yet, given all these objectives. 
And I approach this humbly. Anytime you teach on something where you're keenly aware of your failures, it makes one very humble, or ought to. Uh, So I'm a a father, and it is difficult to do any and all of this, especially. And so everything I say, take it with a sense of humility. I'm not saying take it with a grain of salt, because I believe this is scriptural. This is exegetical, and this is very warranted from the text, but don't take it from me as a sage. Take it from Moses or the Lord himself, as we'll see. So let's get right to it. I want to begin first by reading the whole chapter, start to finish. So if you would go ahead and turn there on your device, or for the remnant of you that still have a physical copy, turn to it in your physical copy. Thank you, Matt. All right, let's read through, and I I just want you to listen. If you can set aside, even for just any moments of our service together, any distractions during this time as we really try to read through and listen to what God has for us. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in the midst, in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you. From off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. 
and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So I want to give you what I believe is a thesis statement. It's in your notes. I'm also going to have it put up on the screen here. This is an attempt to summarize and interpret these things. This will guide our message as we go through. I'm going to read it to you. This is my attempt to solve the riddle and connect the dots between what the family is, what its purpose is, and how that relates to the family of God. Here it is. God's plan for the family is that it would model and cultivate the love of God in order to, number one, promote personal participation in the family of God, and number two, protect the primacy and permanence of the family of God. That's my thesis statement. That's my argument. If you can just buy that and take it, we're done here. But I'm going to explain it if I can, if you'll permit me. You don't have much control over it. You could walk out if you wanted to, but here we go. If you like, you could change this to something like this. A theological summary of Deuteronomy 6, also using other biblical terminology for clarity. That's what it is. I think it represents at least one main angle to get at a summary of what is going on in Deuteronomy 6. Um, I'm not 100% pleased with it. I could change it a few ways, but it just made it really long run-on sentences, a lot of uh, clauses. So this is an attempt to make it short and clear. And I think this, this thesis, this argument, works no matter what time it is, meaning it works under either covenant. This statement applies to Old Covenant Israel as the relationship between the family and the family of God, and it works now between the family and the New Covenant family of God. I would even say it works before Adam's curse, or the curse because of Adam's sin, but that's another discussion. I will not so much work to prove its universal applicability as much as just state it here, because the main point is, of course, the present. How we, how you and I, function in our families in the way that would please the Lord. I think it offers real clarity and revealing power to help you understand your Bibles more and honor the Lord better today. So, 
insofar as this argument is biblical and right and clear and good, it will help you be a better parent and a better member of this church. So we're going to go through it phrase by phrase and then put, uh, put it to work in encouragement, correction, and summons at the end. Okay? So I believe that this statement summarizes the text at its core. So through it, let us enter the world of the text that we may better understand our Lord and the life he has called us to live. So I'm going to start just statement by statement. God's plan. God's plan. The offensive assertion here at the beginning is that God actually has a plan for your life, but specifically in this context for your family. This is very different than saying that God has set up boundaries for your family. It's very different than just trying to keep it together. Well, as long as we don't do anything inordinately evil as a family, then God can be pleased. Plan, the word plan, indicates more than expectations and rules. It's what the theologians call teleology. What is your family for? What is, what is its purpose? This is to say that God not only tells us what is sinful to avoid, but he also tells us what family is meant to accomplish. The Bible, then, God's word related to family, is not just an owner's manual or those manufacturer warnings that show up on any new product you buy with respect to your family. The scriptures, God's word regarding family, set the destination. What is the goal? Where should you aim your family? The Lord tells us why he created it, why in the beginning and what the end goal is. For the theological nerds in the room, you can call this God's chief end for the family. Also understand that the Bible often gives us more helpful answers than what we would say um, in in maybe a, a less than clear theological answer. Stuff like, to glorify God. Right? If I were to accost you in the hallway and say, tell me, what is the chief end of the family? Maybe you would say something like that, well, to glorify God, and that would be true. But it is equally important from the Bible standpoint to answer the question, how is it that the family is meant to glorify God? You can't just set the end goal as your objective and then not clearly accept the route, the path to get there. This is what I think Deuteronomy 6 shows us and why I wrote this thesis and why I think it summarizes it. So, God's plan for the family. I want to be very clear here. Uh, Your family is for something. God has intentions for what your family should do and accomplish. God is not merely interested in outward conformity to rules or a long list of expectations for behavior or just knowledge. Your time spent creating and growing your family is meant to yield something. It's worth mentioning a few things here in the outset. This chapter is very interesting to me for, mul- for multiple reasons. And one of them is that it talks a great deal about the family, the nuclear family. And that is specifically in context with the covenant made with Israel. That's uncommon. This, this passage is, is unique in that respect. You don't always see that. Just look at the number of familial terms used. That you may fear, this is verse 2, that you may fear the Lord God, you and your sons and your sons' sons. And then he says, 
that you may multiply greatly. It's obviously referring to the family. The Lord God of your fathers. And then obviously the Shema, the one that we're familiar with. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house. Write them on the doorposts of your house. You're going in to take the land that God promised to your fathers. And when he threats, when he makes the threat to destroy you from the face of the earth, if they are unfaithful to his covenant, that means that you'll stop being a people. You'll stop having children and there won't be any of you left. Again, verse uh, 18 The land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. When your son asks you in times to come. So understand, there's no temple language here at all. There's no tabernacle language here at all. There's no synagogue, of course. It's the Old Testament before the intertestamental period. So so the community aspect is is there, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the main context of of this propagation of religion, of faithfulness to the covenant, is in the home. It's the family. It is the relational context. Let's just define family broadly because I know not all families are the same. There's complexity there. But the family, that is that place where there's a relational context where there is ongoing or promised physical care and spiritual instruction. A relational context where there is ongoing promised physical care and spiritual instruction. And you see that defining it that way points towards God being the one who provides physical care and instruction. You see, there's a similitude already being established that the way that the family functions is pointing us towards the greater family, that that we're supposed to model certain things, and it's to point us to something. These truths... What what we're going to go through, the bulk of this message, the exhortations, apply to you no matter what your family looks like. Because he begins with saying, hear, O Israel. And that is not a term related just to families. That's to the entire covenant community. So whoever you are, regardless of what your family looks like, children or no children, if you have a relationship with your parents or not, these commands are for you and for us to own together. They are meant to be on your hearts, even the ones related specifically to how families are supposed to function. We'll see this more at the end uh, when we go through the promises that we have in our church covenant. But you see that commitments, these commitments to obey God in these ways lead to corporate responsibility. That the type of community that keeps faith with God is the type of community that is rooted in rich, vibrant families doing these very things. And it's important to say this now, even though I will talk about this more at the end or or the main summons is at the end. These exhortations are true even if you're single. Because to ensure that these things happen is all of our shared responsibility. You can look at the children in our church, the young people who do not yet know the Lord, and feel the weight of this command, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. They're not yours, 
But there is spiritual motherhood and fatherhood that exists. It's a real thing. Deborah herself called a mother of Israel when she, at least as far as the text is concerned, no children of hers are mentioned. This summons is true for the childless as well. Same vein. If you're married and you don't have any of your own children, there is an adoptive posture that you can take towards those who need to be instructed in this way. So hear that summons. This is for all of us. God's plan for the family is that it would model and cultivate the love of God. I want to show you in the text where I believe the love of God is being cultivated. And notice that I'm, I'm saying love over obedience. Love over conformity. Love over faithfulness. We'll talk about this, but the main objective... This is, this is central to the message. The main objective in what the family is supposed to do is to inculcate the members of that family to love the Lord. He alludes to this in, verse, in the beginning, in verse 3, that it may go well with you. Are we afraid that, that the motive for obedience could get muddied a little bit here? That it may go well with you? Wouldn't that call into question the motive of our hearts? But you you see what this is meant to cultivate. God intends to do us good. He is a good God. He will bring us into the land that he promised. He will make good on his promises, brothers and sisters. And your faithfulness to him, your trust in him, should be built on at least one of the pillars being he will, in fact, keep all of his promises to me. He intends to do us good. That cultivates a love for God. In a land flowing with milk and honey... What, what, what images would that bring to an ancient Israelite? And knowing what God intends to do for you, his love for you encourages, cultivates a love in your heart for him. And then, of course, we get to the Shema itself, the central command that Jesus looks back and says, this is the great and first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you just see the, the intentionality and the zeal that could only come from a heart of love or else it would be just fake. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We're reminded again again of God's faithfulness and that he plans to give us this land that he promised in verse 10. And he says in verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God. And you shall do what is right in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you. If there's no heart of love there, then that becomes essentially the prosperity gospel. That your obedience is then aimed at getting something from God. So the only way to circumvent that problem with this text is to say that love, the command, the first and great commandment must be in your heart. Verse 25, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord, our God. This speaks to the fact that God is the one who is initiated in love first, and he has created this covenant between him and Israel. And we are to respond in loving obedience to him. It is important to say here that there is an essential priority of the first and great commandment. I mean, that's, that's very basic. 
No other command is explicitly alluded to in this passage. He just alludes to the statutes, the commands, the rules. The one command given is to love the Lord your God. So if you get nothing else from this sermon, I usually don't like saying that, get this, the main commandment is to impart and to teach diligently to your children the love of God. This is actually different than what you'll find in many books, books that I'll even recommend. I preached on this passage around 12 years ago, and this was the main point that, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Here's what happens in our minds as parents. We think what God is commanding us to do is to say, well, make sure your children know not to murder each other or to steal or to lie, right? Generally, Ten Commandments structured type commandments that we're to instruct our children in. And we neglect the commandment of teaching the love of God. And that's a subtle abandonment of the heart of the motive that's supposed to be behind all of those other commands anyway. Where where is that the antecedent of that word? You shall teach them. It's pointing in both directions, obviously to all the other commandments that he's going to give us. But in the context, most immediately, love the Lord your God. And the reason we, even within conservative theological circles, the reason we make that shift is when we say, well, I can teach my kid not to murder their sibling, maybe. But to teach them to love the, to love the Lord their God, that, yeah, we'll, we'll wait on God to give them a new heart for that. So in, in absence of training them to love the Lord God, we'll just train them in obedience and conformity and law, and precept, and then, and then eventually they'll realize how horrible they are at keeping it, and they'll turn to the Lord God. That is not the pattern given us to us in this passage. New, the new birth, as we know it now, didn't exist when this was given. An Israelite, looking at this and saying, well, that's, that's good, God. I, I see that you command us to love God, but we don't have the new birth yet, so thousands of years later, maybe we'll get around to loving you. You can have a narrow definition and implications of the theology or the doctrine of regeneration and circumvent what God really wants you to do in the family. The first and foremost, the way even good books, even good books that I would still recommend, like I said, talk about it and say, well, since you can't force or, or cause or teach the love of God until they have the new hearts, then what, the new heart, then what you need to do is impart knowledge of God. Or, or good morals, or reveal to them how God created the world to work. One preacher that I, I used to listen to said, you just got to put kindling around that, that, the base of that thing and, and s- stuff it full with, with little things that can catch on fire real easily. And then eventually, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll, he'll light that on fire and it'll, it'll just take a flame. And I'm saying, if that's all you can do, then we're lost. Rather, fan into flame the love of God in your heart, resulting in obvious delight and obedience from that delight, and watch the Lord cause that fire to spread, even to your children. Even if the amount of kindling you've put at the base of that is very, very small, 
Fire is contagious, if we're going with that analogy. You are able to influence what your child loves or hates far more than you know. If you were totally unable to cultivate and model the love of God in an effective way until the Lord God gave the new birth, then this chapter would make no sense and it shouldn't be there. I'll give you a silly example of how parents are able to influence what their child loves or hates. So I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so don't get mad at me, but I am a Cowboys fan. And now my daughter is a Cowboys fan too and loves the Cowboys. And it makes sense because when it's the season, which starts today, it started on Thursday, but kind of starts today, really. Um... It is evidenced in the priorities of our scheduling and in the behavior of her father and in the things I cheer about, get excited about, or get sad about. So she sees that and knows what is valuable. And she knows what to hate. Roger Goodell and the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay. (laughs) But if she were born in a household where they love the Philadelphia Eagles... God forbid, but she would have grown up as a lover of the Philadelphia Eagles. And look, I know that's a silly example. And I know that loving the Lord God is not like loving the Dallas Cowboys. But you are able to influence what your child loves more than you know. Your children will not, will not very much remember all the little things that you taught them. How to behave in this or that situation, this rule or that rule, precept upon precept, line upon line. That all still may be in there rattling around, but they will remember what will stand out to them. What will be really highlighted for them in their memories is what mattered to you. This is why laws without the commandment to love the Lord your God is just an utter failure. You're just creating a Pharisee. Here's the point. You cannot put an equal sign between love and obedience. It's an arrow, and it points one direction. And most parenting strategies that are out there, even subtly in books that I would still recommend, I keep saying that, like I'm not trying to just dismiss everything a lot of these teachings have to say. It's essentially saying force obedience first, and that will lead to love. Did that ever work for Israel? At this point, we are right up against a major foundational theological truth that is somewhat mysterious, and that is this, that love, in fact, precedes knowledge. We saw this in Colossians 2, and I didn't even intend it. We're supposed to be knit together in love that we may understand. And it's true in your relationship with the Lord. The devil's got a lot of knowledge about the Lord. Don't raise little demons who know a lot about the Lord but have no love. This is why we ordered our church purpose statement the way we did. It goes, North Star Baptist Church exists, gathers, and makes disciples to love and obey and enjoy and know. It starts with love. It has to. And it's so significant. 
We'll see this more at the end. Notice there are so many places in this passage where we're to remember God's goodness. This seems to be even the foundation for obedience, even to the Shema. The reason you ought to love the Lord is because He has loved you first and He has promised to do you all this good, all of this blessing. He's, he's going to keep His promises that He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and He's going he's to bring it to pass, so love Him. That's how even that command is phrased. We are responsible then to model and cultivate the love of God. Again, no matter what your family looks like, even if you don't have one necessarily in the traditional sense, you're to model and cultivate the love of God to those who look up to you or who look to you in any sense. And we do this in four ways, I think, that are apparent in this text. This is how we model and cultivate the love of God. We do it through diligence. He said, you shall teach them diligently. What do you do diligently in your family? Even if you train your children in something, something godly, have you sidelined the love of God? The question is essentially this. Do you love the Lord your God diligently? D.A. Carson is speaking about the passage in Matthew 22 where we were last Lord's Day. says, speaking of this idea that all, on these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets, he says, without love, the law and the prophets become sterile. Have you conveyed or taught or impressed on your children a sterile form of Christianity? Jesus says, on these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, hinge all the law and the prophets. Have you just given your children a door with no hinges? A door with no hinges is really no good except to take up space in your garage. We also do this through obedience ourselves. He says, multiple places we must be careful to do the commands of God. We must walk ourselves in obedience. What are you careful to do in the context of your home? What are you meticulous about as a mother or father? Is it the love of God and finding your true purpose and delight in Him? Or is it something else? Is it hobby, work, cleanliness? a facade. What are you meticulous about? How would your children answer that question? What do you as mommy or dad, if, as, as long as you could explain what meticulous meant, what, what, what are mommy or daddy meticulous about? What are they diligent about? Be careful. How would your younger brothers or sisters in this room in a spiritual sense or literally in a biological sense answer that question for you as a sibling that can influence them to keep these commands? What are you meticulous about? Thirdly, we do this through delight. Again, remember, this is how we model and cultivate the love of God. We do it through personal delight. The commandment implies that we must get love of God settled in our hearts first before we can ever dare convey that and teach that and mandate that or any type of conveyance to anyone else. Do you love the Lord your God? And can your children detect it? Or to them, does it appear that what you really love is a well-behaved brood of children? 
Or to them does it appear that what you really love is fill in the blank. Do you remember David and his rejoicing before the ark? There was no mistaking who was his delight in that moment. He made himself into what appeared to be a fool, especially to his wife. But seeing that, seeing David rejoice before the Lord, I'm not saying you need to strip down and dance at church. Please don't. But is there anything in your life that you can point to and say, look, I delight in the Lord, and I'm conveying that to the people of God and the ones that he has put in my household? Delight first, then leading to obedience. If you convey even obedience to your children with no delight, they'll see it. They'll see the sterile, lifeless version of Christianity that you're presenting, and they won't want to have anything to do with it. And they'll be right to reject it if that's what Christianity is. Does the way you pursue obedience show, first of all, that all of it, all of it is from a heart that loves God and wants to gain more of God? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Fourthly, we do this through remembrance. We're spending most of our time here getting at this central phrase of modeling and cultivating the love of God because that is central. The rest will move more quickly. But this is the fourth way that we do that, through remembrance. We were slaves. When your son comes and asks you one day, what are the meaning of all these commandments, these statutes? Hey, we were slaves. Let me tell you the story of what God has done. Take care lest you forget, lest you forget the Lord. We remind ourselves, we remind our children of all he's done. And look, I know this is under the old covenant when this command is given, lest you forget. But if you know anything about church history, especially the book of Hebrews, you know that this very same kind of risk exists for the new covenant community. It can be the case that future generations will forget the Lord. Do you understand that the gospel was lost for about a thousand years? I mean, there were people who were Christians, don't get me wrong. But for the world over, for about a thousand years, no real access to the gospel anywhere. There was, there was a subtle perversion called Roman Catholic theology. Justification by works. So we're to remember, 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 and remind our children, of what God has done. The love of God, we're to love Him through the act of bringing to mind what He has done for us. That's what I think verses 20 through 25 really show. We'll get to that more in a bit. And I'll give you one more. I know I said four, but here's a fifth. Through faith. He says in verse 24, to do all the statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. We're going to talk about this in, in the 
five or six weeks, a message I'm already working on called the, the character of God. And sometimes I think the way that we relate God to other people, whether non-believers or people in our house or other Christians, is that you should just trust God no matter what. And I understand what we're trying to say in that. But if he does not have intentions for our good always, for those who trust him, he's not worthy of trust. If he's not going to make good on his promises, he's not worthy of your trust. You should believe in faith that he will, in fact, do all these things. And even if he slay me in this life, he will bring me into his presence and I will have joy forevermore. Faith is then belief that God will do these things for your good always. And you must convey that to your children. It's not just trying to give them a sense of how not to get crossways with the bully up in the sky. He's going to send them to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. That's true. But the reason you should love the Lord Jesus is because He has promised to do all these good things for you and has created this path for you to walk and has given you all that you need for life and godliness in this life and welcomes you into His family. He does good things for those who trust Him. We cannot separate the love of God, faith in Him from what He does, because it is through what He does that He tells us who He is. We must also love Him for what He does and promises to do. God's plan for the family is that it would model and cultivate the love of God in order to. It's important to to state that we must not stop with this basic or explicable love of God. There is a point or an end goal of teaching your children the love of God. This means this. This love of God, especially in this general sense, the, the way that even an unregenerate person can love the Lord, Old Testament style of love of the Lord, that, it, that is not an end in itself. We want to go somewhere, and it will go somewhere insofar as it is real. And this is where statements like glorify and enjoy him forever and know him and seek him and all these things come out. Because once that love is there, then all those things come into place. In order that. So we're to model and cultivate the love of God in order that. Number one. In order to promote personal participation in the family of God. We're using the phrase family of God here, but you could just as easily substitute it with any of the other words or terms used to speak about God's people. So God's people, uh, God's holy nation, his priesthood, the church, um, the kingdom of God as it's worded in our church covenant. But it just sounds better to say the two families than the family and the kingdom of God, right? That's kind of a mouthful. So I tried to make the title make sense. Two families just sounds better. And it draws a very important connection. Because the family of God is the only eternal entity here. Your family doesn't last forever. God's family does. And your family is then, this is the point of this statement, is to be the training ground for this participation in God's greater family. It's not two separate spheres. Family isn't just off doing its own thing. 
up to its own rules and the church over here doing its own thing with its own rules. Your family is for preparing participation in the family of God for those under your care. Your family is kind of like the test environment, the flight simulator compared to the real airplane. In short, here's the point here. The ancient Jewish family was meant to train up their sons and daughters in order to be a full-fledged member of the covenant community. And here we need to say that there is just a difference between the national promises and the individual. Yes, it is true that all the promises of God were made to all the descendants of Abraham. But there is commandment after commandment after commandment of ways that you could get cast out of the people. Let him be cut off from the people. So that means you're no longer in the covenant. If you persist in disobedience, then you're out. It was the Old Testament version of church discipline. And then there was execution, too. We don't do that anymore. But look at how this works in the text. There, there, there are so many places where this is connected. Hear, O Israel. right? So the command comes to the whole covenant community. And then I command you. These shall be on your heart. So intensely personal. And you shall teach them to your children. So what you have is God's promise presiding over the entire covenant community. And then each individual, insofar as they have influence with the people under their care, imparting that same knowledge of God, that same love of God, first and foremost, to them that they would then participate in the greater covenant community. Take care lest you forget. So so each individual had this threat before them that they would grow uh, wealthy and fat on the good food that was in the promised land and have too much of that milk and honey and then just forget about the Lord. It's not necessarily the case that all of them would forget together, though that's a risk too. It's that each individual person runs the risk of forgetting the Lord. And then you see down at the, at the end that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. That he might do us good always. So, so the invitation, as the, the context here is that your son or, or daughter, presumably, comes to you asking, what are the, command, the meaning of the commandments? Here's the invitation, son or daughter. Walk in obedience to these commands. Participate in this covenant that God has made with our fathers. That's how they connect. So understand... The clear, and I do mean clear implication of what's, what I believe is going on in this text. Do not look to God to open the heart of your child so that they will receive your otherwise perfect parenting instruction. Rather, you are to obey and love God so that they will too. That's the point. And if they are born again... If God will be so pleased to do that, then that love will stick and never grow cold. And listen, don't do anything rash after hearing a message like this. Don't go home and say, all right, kids, I'm going to train you to love God so much you won't even know what hits you. The ordering of this text won't let you do that. You cannot train someone in the love of God unless you yourself first love and obey the Lord God. Unless you manifest that delight in Him. It won't work. They'll see the hypocrisy. 
We know that. And notice I said promote. Promote personal participation, not guarantee. But even though I'm not using the word guarantee, consider how we talk about evangelism. How will they believe on him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You could reword that to work in the family. How are they to love God unless they see someone loving God? How are they to obey in the right way unless they see someone loving God out of delight? And if you do, you will be an effective evangelist to your child. That's the point. So are you, in your love of God and obedience to Him, paving the way and beckoning your children to follow you in the love of God? Or... Are you harshly pointing them to conformity and obedience and the law and the rigidity of holiness with no delight because, oh, well, we're waiting on God to take care of the delight and love factor with the new birth. And you know this works. This works with us. Have you ever been around a friend before you were a Christian or afterward who just loved the Lord? And for some reason, being around them, talking to them, hearing them, seeing how they lived their life, it, it, it affected you. It was contagious in some sense. Even if it wasn't 100% genuine at the first, it just drew you to that. This is what I'm saying you get to do every day with your children. Regeneration is a miracle. But consider that the love of God expressed in delight in obedience is contagious. And how all that works together is God's prerogative. You just focus on being contagious in your love. In the same way that Jesus speaks of our love toward each other, it has a compelling effect. When we show our love for each other in the family of God, it even has an effect on non-believers that they become convinced that these are God's people. God must have sent Jesus because look at their love. Your insistence in your home on obedience, and you should insist on obedience, but your insistence on obedience and understanding God's commandments, if they cannot see and sense the love of God and the delight in Him that you have, that might be the biggest hindrance for them coming to faith. So, to summarize this point, we are to cultivate and model love of God towards participation so that they would love the the Lord too for their own good. Such a great example when in in this setup in this this episode here, starting in verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come. I think what's going on there is the situation that typically comes up for us in our families. But why? That's essentially what the son is saying here in verse 20. What is the meaning of these commandments? And the father or mother has the opportunity to say to son or daughter, because I said so. Right? Because that's the law. Notice how he begins. We were slaves. God brought us out. He saved us. He ordained to do us good so we can obey him forever. And it will be for our good always. 
It's just a massive fundamental shift, a watershed point in our relationship with our children, with younger people in our church, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Why should they want to love God? Because we do. Secondly, we're to cultivate, model and cultivate the love of God in order to, number two, protect the primacy of the family of God. This one split up into two. I didn't want to make it three. Protect the primacy of the family of God. This has been implied and asserted this entire time, but I'll try to summarize it here very quickly. I know we're running low on time. The family, your biological family, nuclear family, whatever word we would use, is not the point. So in the way that you lead and the way that you talk about your family, you really do need to convey to your children that this isn't it. This is not the point. The way that you lead and shepherd them will show them, if you're doing it right, will show them that the family of God is better because it's going to last forever. It protects the primacy for it. There are several places in the text that we could see this, but most of them are seen with him using the plural. Verse 3, that he has promised you, you shall love the Lord your God. The land that he swore to give to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you. These are all plural. And then in the answer that the father gives to the son's question, starting in verse 21, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand using God's covenant name throughout. Before our eyes brought us out. Give us the land that he's word to give our fathers. All the promises of God, the biggest and most significant ones that you're supposed to convey to your children that they should treasure, have almost nothing to do with your family. They have all to do with the family of God. You get to help them see that. Their belonging in your family is temporary regardless of how you slice it. But their potential participation in the family of God is eternal. 1 Peter 1, verse 24, You have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. If they get to belong in this family, it's forever. In short, the family and God's family are different and distinct, and the family of God has primacy. And what we do in our families as we seek to cultivate the love of God puts family, our family, in its proper place in the relationship to family and God. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul, this is the attitude you should have towards your children. Dear son, dear daughter, there is only one God. Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is only one message of salvation. Him only shall you serve and love. And even if an angel or another teacher, or even if your mother or I come teaching something different, then let us be accursed. That's how the the significance and the priority that the family of God should have in the way that you teach and train your children. The temporary nature of the family does not diminish its significance. Rather, its purpose is found in protecting the primacy and the priority of the family of God. And also the permanence. I'll run through this very quickly. I have a whole page on this. 
It might sound oddly paradoxical at first to say that your family gets to work to protect the family of God's permanence, because I've already said it's permanent. It's not going away. It's forever. So how can your family, which is temporary, protect the permanence of something that's already permanent? The point is this. As I said, the question is whether or not we maintain faith. All of the threats, these are the texts that we were planning to go through, all the threats to drive them out, to cause them to be wiped off the face of the earth. There are important places where the New Covenant and the Old Covenant are different. But if you just read Christ's letters to the seven churches, you know that that same threat, in a subtly different way, still applies to us. They'll come and take away our lampstand. And I don't want to find out what that means. As I said, the gospel was lost for a thousand years. We can't blame the absence of the printing press for that. What happened is that people stopped loving the Lord their God and they stopped teaching their children the love of God. The reason why cities like Amsterdam, which used to be the epicenter of missions sending and gospel proclamation, are now the epicenters of secularism and humanism. What happened is not that some guy got in charge and changed the laws. It's because God's people forgot and neglected to love the Lord their God. And they neglected to teach the love of God to their children. Understand what I'm saying. The preservation of the covenant in some way hinges on what you do in your families. Remember the story of Josiah? The book of the covenant was lost. They stumbled upon it as they were cleaning up the temple. Is your house like that? Is your house about like the temple in those early days of Josiah? You may have it on your phone, have it on your nightstand, have it on your table. But what, what, is, what is the word of God really like in your household? That is how we prevent us losing it again. And this is how your decisions in your home with your children will echo down through eternity, especially if the Lord chooses to keep his finger on the pause button between now and the, the judgment day. Love God. Teach the love of God to your children by modeling it for them from the heart. You need to show them what it means to have a heart that loves God, mind, soul, and a mind and a soul that hungers and thirsts for God. So just in a few minutes that we have left, I know I've gone over already, I'm sorry. There are a couple of ways that we do this, that we try to do this. I was going to read through the promises that we make in our church covenant. They're there in your bulletin. You can read them. Interestingly, when I sent out the covenant for feedback, this was back in 2019, the most major criticism I got was to get rid of this whole section on the family. Just, just get it out. And he said, I understand what you're trying to do, but it really seems out of place as promises to make regarding how we do things in our family for a church covenant. And, and that's like, thank you for your feedback, but no. Because this is exactly what God is still doing. You and us together 
having our families function like this is what will make participation in the greater family of God happen at all. Secondly, we pursue accountability. We make these promises and we have accountability to make sure that we keep them. The whole purpose of this this series, even though I haven't spent a a lot of time talking about it, was the things that we do as a church to help each other remain faithful. And just so you know, (laughs) parenting in this way, modeling the love of God to your children, and not focusing too much on obedience or conformity to rule or precept, but manifesting the love of God to them is the hardest thing you'll ever do. The hardest. Being a Navy SEAL, landing on the moon, becoming a billionaire, easy compared to loving the Lord your God and teaching your children in the love of God. And so we need help. Accountability to these promises means that we accept help from each other. This is what our groups are meant to do. Our growth groups, our discipleship groups, and meaningful relationships with each other because you're going to need help can't be an island doing this on your own. You can see information about all the things that we do out on the connection board in the back. I do want to have a few minutes to press against a few ideas, obviously a few bad ideas regarding parenting. Um, I'm not going to get to preach for three weeks, so I'm going a little bit long maybe. I don't know. Um... If you you can substitute the love uh, the law for love, in your parenting, we've already talked about that. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. You can think that by conformity to law, you'll encourage a heart of love. It won't work. Another bad idea is pragmatism. Even for spiritual growth, we can take such an easy out by saying, "Well, that doesn't work for my kid." I'm not seeing the results that I want to see, even in their spiritual growth. What your child needs to see is that even if it's not working in their case, you love the Lord your God. And effectiveness towards them doesn't matter as much to you as pleasing your Heavenly Father. That's what they need to see. Think of Abraham. We're supposed to share in the faith of Abraham. Offer him up to me as a sacrifice. Well, Lord, I'm not sure that that's the best thing for his spiritual growth. What Isaac saw is that obedience to the Lord, even if that means my destruction, matters most to him. And we're supposed to share in the faith of Abraham for justification. What does that look like in your homes? With discipline, with obedience. Another bad idea is holding your kids to a higher level of consistency and conformity and love than you have ever shown them. Your love, your obedience is the watermark. And you cannot insist that they go above that at all. What are you seeking? This is the fourth point under exhortations, encouragements, summons. What are you seeking? You can tell them about the Lord your God as much as you want and try to teach them theology and commandments and law, but they won't give a rip if they don't see your love for Him. What are you really seeking? If they see that to you, other things matter more than the Lord, they're not going to listen. They shouldn't. 
Ask this question, if you dare, to your children. What ma- uh, son or daughter, what matters most to daddy in the whole wide world? I ask this of my children. Ransom, after using it as an opportunity to ask for me to build a slide indoors, said, <laughs> said coffee, which, fair point, a, millen- a millennial pastor and probably average around seven or eight cups of coffee a day. Um, but Zoe said, and I'm sorry, you know, kids of preachers get to be illustrations. But Zoe said, maybe being a pastor or loving Jesus, so maybe I'd scored a D, D plus, maybe a C. How would they answer? You might say, well, that's easy to you, for you to say as a pastor, but there, there are as many traps for ministers' children as there are for any of your children, maybe more, of what really matters to mommy and daddy. Here's what I'm saying. Conduct your life, lead your family in a way that their answer could be more frequently the love of God. What matters most to mommy and daddy? Loving the Lord our God. A few encouragements to parents, if you can bear with me. If you've failed, which maybe I should change that to since we have failed, fear not, because then you have half of what you need to make massive strides in your instruction and teaching of your children the love of God. Because failure leading to asking for forgiveness and showing repentance to your children will do so much more for training them in the love of God and showing them what really matters to you than you showing no weakness and holding the line for conformity. Them seeing you love God and showing your vulnerability and asking for forgiveness, that will go miles and miles and miles further than trying to force conformity on some commandment. I promise you that. And it's not even close. Also, don't place undue burdens on your children. Here's a little secret. In all likelihood, they probably won't be a professional athlete or the president or as very influential by the world standards at all. But if you train them to love the Lord, first and foremost, the effect of a life lived in the love of God echoes down through eternity in a way that Elon Musk can't even imagine. Encouragements to children, or those who never had parents who did this well, or at all, consider Gideon whose father was a priest of Baal. Talk about a bad hand being dealt to you. You can still love the Lord your God, and you can still encourage others, even your parents, to love the Lord your God. So, with that, we'll conclude. I had more, of course, but we got to shut it down. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you this day shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware of our inadequacies as parents. So humble us, make us patient, Give us times and ways that we can get away as a parent 
or as parents and figure out how we can change our, our families to teach the love of God to our children so that they will be participants in your family and so that the integrity of your family will, will be preserved through the ages. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.